Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, coming out in the snow. It's good to see so many faces and everybody in the back and everybody online. You're probably wondering, how come Dan keeps preaching? Well, what happened was last week, Brian had an opportunity to go to a first responders conference, and uh, he asked me if I'd uh, take his place, and I said, yeah, and he said, well, I'll take yours the following week. I said, no, 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 there's some very interesting things we're going to be talking about today, and so I really wanted to get an opportunity to share with you uh, some of the things that we are, are going to talk about. Um, today it's going to be a little bit probably more theological than we're probably used to, so bear with me. And part of the reason for that is we're going to get into something that's a little wild. And I need you to understand the context of what the Scripture says in order for all of this to make sense. Because depending on your background, you may or may not be familiar with some of the things that I'm going to be talking about, even though they seem like very familiar terms. You're going to find out that there's some very interesting nuances that you want to understand. And it was really good in, the, in our singing today, today when we were talking about the fact that God causes all things to work together for good. And I really want you to get an understanding of what that looks like on a, a very large time frame scale, right? Sometimes we can look at that in just our own lives and there's truth to that. But there's also part of God's message where he's doing that before the foundation of the world, before any of us were created. And that's one of the things that's so interesting about Ephesians. Now, we keep hearing every week we break it up in little sections, but I want you to get a feel for how this thing keeps continuing to build and how Paul keeps continuing the revelation of Jesus Christ and what exactly it is that he's doing. If you remember, Brian talked about the fact that we're all in Christ and what that meant. And uh, Alex got on and he talked a lot about family and how God is trying to create this enormous family, both in heaven and on earth. Mark talked to us just about God's great plan and how all of us fit into that. I talked last week about um, the love of Christ and how once you understand who you are in Christ, you then have the power now. You have the difference in your mindset to be able to forgive other people, to be more patient, more kind, more caring, and all of that. And that's something that God had intended from the very foundation of the world. How do I take these people? How do I create these beings who are made in my image and bring them along in the way that I want to fashion them so they get the entirety of who I am and what I want for their lives? Now, before we get started, I'm going to ask you a pretty simple question. And again, this is part of the theology. What is the gospel? Anybody tell me what the gospel is? Well, the good news is taking it from the Greek to the English, but what is the gospel? Define what it means. When somebody says the gospel, what does that entail? Christ died for sin. Christ died for sin? Yeah, that's part of it. According to Paul, Paul says, For I delivered you to first importance, and also I received from Christ that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. It's the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. Now, we spend a lot of time in church talking about the crucifixion, right? And we spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection, but we don't spend much time talking about the burial. I've been a Christian going on 40 years, and I don't think anybody has really ever preached a sermon that talked about what happened during the burial of Jesus Christ and why that's so important. You're going to get some insight because Paul will make a very interesting allusion to this, and I want to expand on it so you can understand the full gravity of, of what I think Paul is trying to communicate to us. 
So if I could ask you all, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And our reading today is from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 10. And Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope, your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God and Father who, of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Okay, please be seated. So in this passage, what we do is this, we're going to basically be talking about two things. One is the unity of Christ, right? What Christ did to unify all of us. And then we're going to talk about something that's very interesting. Paul refers to it as Christ's gift, and he goes off and he makes some very interesting allusions. And we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole. But first of all, let's talk about what he says at the beginning. If you notice, he says, I am the prisoner of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means Paul says, I'm a captive of the Lord. Now, wait, I thought Jesus Christ came to set us all free. He did, but Paul understood that in the enormity of all that God had in mind, he was willing to become Christ's prisoner, Christ's captive because he was so overwhelmed. Remember when we talked about last week, he says, when I think about everything that God's doing, I fall on my knees. It is so amazing. It is so uncomprehensible, everything that God is trying to do. And so Paul is able with great comfort to say, hey, I'm a prisoner and I'm perfectly happy with that. How do you feel about your position in the Lord? Do you see yourself as the prisoner of the Lord? I don't know, but that's evidently how we should view ourselves. And especially in light of what you're going to see about prisoners and captives today. So anytime I look at the, at the scriptures and get an opportunity to preach, one of the first things I always do is I like to say, what does this have to say about the nature of God? And I like to think about who he is and what it means, um, you know, just every aspect about him. One of the most fascinating things, when God creates, have you ever noticed all the diversity that he creates? I mean, when you think about animals, you've got these little itty-bitty animals, you've got ants to elephants, and even with elephants, you've got big ones, little ones, fat ones, skinny ones. Everything, when you think about humans, all the diversity with all of us, all the different colors, the hairstyles, the tall, short, whatever. There's great diversity in all of humanity. When you think about other things that are the intangibles, when you think about music, what kind of music do you like? Are you a rapper? Or are you a hard rocker? Or are you a classical person? The diversity is, is boundless. And that's what you see in God is this great creative, I don't want to necessarily say force, but this great creative intelligence that creates such diversity. Can you imagine if we all looked alike, how boring that would be? If we all thought exactly the same, what would we even talk about? The fact that we all agree about everything? But God did this for a particular purpose, and that is to convey to you that you are special, that you are unique. In fact, Max Licato says this, you are heaven's first and final attempt at you. You are matchless, unprecedented, and unequaled. Consequently, you can do something that no one else can do in a fashion that no one else can do it. 
That's really pretty remarkable, that God loves you so much, He made you special. You're not like anybody else. But there's a problem with all of this uniqueness that we possess, right? One of us likes this, and one of us likes that. And so it can cause, at times, friction. And we see that in our world. There's plenty of friction. But is that why God created so much diversity? I don't think so. I think when you read Ephesians, you can understand that what God wanted to do was bring the entire creation together in a unified fashion. He calls it His family. Both the angels in heaven, whose beings and and their reflection, everything about them is bizarre to us. I mean, they have six wings, they fly and they cover their face and their feet. They have faces like animals and humans. I mean, they're very different from us. And yet, we're created in God's image, and He wants to bring all of this together. And so you have to get kind of a feel for what is happening in God's grand design. So God has a plan, and that plan is ultimately to build unity. And Paul says, look, we're going to create unity in the church. Remember how we talked about God wants a family? The church is the beginning of the heavenly family. It encompasses all of humanity. Ultimately, it will expand to the heavenly realm as well. He says there's one spirit. Now, why one spirit? Well, if you remember, before Jesus died, he says, it's best if I leave, because if I leave, I can send you the spirit. And the Bible also talks about him like being a gift to us. So there's something special about the spirit and about his gifting to us. We have ultimately one hope. We definitely have one Lord, and we're going to see why we call him Lord. We have one faith, one gospel, right? One death, burial, and resurrection that we all believe in. We have one baptism that is symbolic of what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one God who is Father of all. In other words, we're all brothers and sisters. There's a reason that we share a commonality, and that commonality is through our Father in heaven. Now, when you think about that, in light of kind of what we talked about last week, right, that we have to come to grips with our own nature, the fact that we're sinful human beings. So how do you take a sinful human being and suddenly unleash them to become these great ambassadors for God? We're going to talk more about that as we explore Israel, but the nation of Israel and what happened to them. But I want you to see then, as we continue on in what Ephesians is talking about, Paul goes on in, in verse 7 and 10, he says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Christ is trying to implant in each and every one of us a gift. Now the question is, how does he do that? And that's where Paul gets a little bit theological on it. He says, therefore, when he ascended on high, right, when he went to heaven, he led captive a host of captives. Well, who are these captives? And a host is a large body of them, right? He led this huge gathering of people who it calls captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, it's very interesting if you follow this passage, and I didn't record it, but the reference goes back to one of the Psalms. And if you go and look at it, it's interesting because Paul doesn't quote the Psalm correctly. And that should be an immediate clue to you that something is there for you to take special notice of. In fact, if you go back to the Psalm, it says... um, Uh, When he did this, men gave gifts to him, but Paul misquotes it and says, no, he gives gifts to men. Why does he need to give gifts to men? Because you can't take a bunch of prisoners and suddenly expect them to, to act respectable if some kind of change, if some kind of gift hasn't been given to them. And that'll make more sense as we look at Israel. 
Then he goes on and he says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Huh. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all things. And why did he need to do that? Why did he need to go above heaven and below the earth? So that he might fill all things. So that he could be Lord of everything. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind. So here's the great game plan that God is after. And in order to understand that, I've got to make sure that our theology is right. So we're going to go down some rabbit holes. I've got to teach you four things before I can get back on track with the story. So please bear with me. The first thing is, is you have to get an understanding of what I call biblical geography. Now, for most of us, our biblical geography consists of up above is heaven and down below is hell. And sometimes we come across different words and we get all mixed up because it, it's like, why does the Bible use all these different words? So we just categorize everything as being hell, right? Easy. Above is heaven, below is hell. Turns out that's not the case. Matter of fact, the Bible is very specific when it uses those words, and it uses them very intentionally. Now, you may have a, a uh, translation of, of the Bible that might get some of these incorrect, but I assure you, in the Greek, they're very specific, and they knew exactly what they were talking about. So there's this idea of the grave. What is the grave? This is the place before the crucifixion where everyone went. To the Jews, they called it Sheol. To the Greeks, they called it Hades. You're also going to see in the Bible it's called paradise. It's like, wait a minute, I thought paradise was up above. No, paradise is the good side of Sheol, right, or Abraham's bosom, and then you also have a bad side of Sheol or the grave, okay? So that's our first area. Then we have a second area, and it's referred to as the abyss, Tartarus, or the bottomless pit. So what's the difference? Everyone who died went to the grave, Sheol, Hades, if you did some very especially bad things, you were thrown into the abyss. Remember the uh, Gerasene demoniac, right? When he cast the demons out into the pigs, what did the, the demons say? You're not going to throw us into the abyss. The abyss is like a special prison, okay? It's a special holding place for people who are very bad, and there's some very bad characters in there. The Bible will also call it Tartarus, which uses the Greek reference for that. That was the lowest part of Hades, and also the bottomless pit. Those are three terms for the same idea. Then the fourth place is hell, right? And that's the one we like to generalize all of these statements. But the Bible will call hell Gehenna. It will call it the lake of fire. And it will also call it the outer darkness. So it's important as we go through all of this that you keep these three distinct areas in mind so that you can understand what we're talking about. Now, the best description that we have of this and the distinction between it comes from Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 16, verse 19, this is a story of Lazarus and the rich man. I'll read that for us. He says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. <clears throat> now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, right, Hades, he went to Abraham's bosom, but then Jesus said, that's also called Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. Now, see, this is where you get a little confused. It's like, well, wait, the bad side seems to be a very hot place, and hot places are always hell. We'll talk about that. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Abraham or Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from here to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes uh, from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses, neither will they be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead." So in this parable, you see a number of references. You see a reference to Abraham's bosom, you see a reference to Hades, and you see a reference to this fiery torment. So evidently in Hades, in Sheol, in the place of the dead, this is what happened before the cross where everyone went when they died. There was a great chasm. It appears to be a good side and a bad side. Now, how exactly do you get on one side or the other? The Bible really doesn't say, but we can speculate a little bit. We know that from the very beginning of time, right, with Adam and Eve, there was a promise of the Savior. So some of the theological speculation is that those who were looking for Jesus Christ were potentially on the good side, and the other people were on the bad side, okay? So we'll leave it at that just as a simple explanation. Now, it says, I am in agony and flame, and some people say, I don't believe anything you're saying. There's just one place. When they went down there, they all went to hell. Not what the Bible says. The bad side is not hell. How do I know that? We'll look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. Again, this is a little theological, just bear with me. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, for those from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. This is at the end of time. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged. And the things which were written in the books, and death and their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades, what happened to them? They were thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is not the lake of fire. It gets thrown into there. This is the second death right? The lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is thrown into there. It is not, Hades is not hell, okay? We all on the same page there. Now we can go to the second point, and that is this whole idea of Sheol, and it creates a particular problem. So we all live on this side of the cross, but suppose you lived on the other side of the cross. What happened to you? You don't have the death, burial, and resurrection that results in the one faith that causes your salvation. So what happens to you when you die? You go to Sheol on the good side or on the bad side. Now, that doesn't matter so much to us because what happens now when a believer dies? Well, he goes straight to be with Jesus in heaven, right, according to what Paul says. Um, He doesn't go to the grave anymore. Those who don't believe, what happens to them? My speculation would be that they go into Hades just like everybody before them. And they're waiting because in Revelation that we just said, the death and and Hades gave up all of those people, right? So it appears that they were there. Now, again, it probably isn't a big deal to us, but it was a big deal if you're at the first century church because you're sitting there going, what happened to all the people who died before Christ? They never got a chance to hear the gospel. 
Do they just die or do they stay in this state of limbo forever? What happens to them? It turns out the Bible has a lot to say about that, and we're going to look into that a little bit more. The third thing you need to understand is the divine pattern. So all along in the Bible, God will sit and set up these stories over and over again so you begin to get an idea of what was happening. Remember when Paul says, it's the death, burial, and resurrection according to the Scriptures? So if I take away the New Testament, can you preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament? If not, you should be able to. But what you've got to do is you've got to look for what I call the divine pattern. So one of the things that God does, he hides these ideas in his stories, and he does this with his people Israel. And through Israel, he begins to develop a divine pattern. And it's really fascinating because even the very words that the Bible uses to describe some of the um, ideas he's presenting are very instructive. For example, when you take a look at the nation of Israel, right? It becomes Jacob and his family. There become 70 members of his household, and they go to Egypt, right? Well, no. The Bible doesn't say they go to Egypt. They go down to Egypt, interestingly enough. Is that important? I think every word in the Bible is there for a reason, right? Then what happens to Israel when they go down to Egypt? They ultimately become what? Slaves and captives to who? To the ruler of the world, Pharaoh. And he basically sets up this confrontation with God, and he says, I'm not going to let these people go. And so you get this story between Moses and Pharaoh and God where all of this is happening. Matter of fact, the Bible says that um, God hardened, Moses, uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, a lot of people sometimes will sit back and go, well, it looks like God's just making it so Pharaoh can't see it. Well, when you listen to the rabbis, they'll tell you that word hardening is like the idea of stealing, right? In other words, it's reinforcing what you already want to believe and what you already want to do. You always have to have a very open mind when you approach God because one of the things that he does, he will turn you over to your own beliefs and you do not want to have that happen, right? You want to be very much on the alert because that's what happened to Pharaoh. He got turned over to what he already thought was true and God kept encouraging to believe what he already believed. Now, during that time, what does God establish? He establishes a couple of very interesting things that ultimately become part of the feasts of Israel, the first of which we call Passover, right? And in Passover, they killed the lamb, they put the blood on the door. What was that significant of? That was significant of the crucifixion, right? If you're covered in the blood, you basically, death will pass over you. But right after that, if you look in Exodus, he goes over a particularly interesting thing that he tells them, I want you to celebrate also this thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in all of the law of Israel, there's all of these rules and regulations basically informing you of of the fact that you're a sinner. But then he says, what I want you to do, I want you to go through your house and I want you to get rid of all the leaven, get rid of all the sin. And so everybody would diligently go through their house, removing every cracker, every breadcrumb, everything that they could possibly think of. But when you read these stories, remember all of the Bible is written to reveal to you about Jesus Christ. So there's something special about this feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's symbolic of what? The burial of Jesus Christ. And you'll see how that becomes important in just a little bit. So in the divine pattern, what do we see? We see Israel going down to Egypt. We see them placed in captivity. We see them covered in the blood 
of the Lamb so that death will pass over them. We see them celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the removal of sin. <clears throat> we see this confrontation between God and the ruler of the world. And God ultimately, through Moses, acts as a redeemer and frees his people. Now, think about this. If you were an Israelite, you've been a slave. What do you have to your name? Nothing. So I'm going to create a nation. I'm God. I create this nation. I send them off to be an example to all the world. I can't send them off as paupers. So during that time when, he, when this divine pattern is established, what does he do to the Egyptians? He has the, the Israelites go and ask the Egyptians for all their stuff, and the Egyptians turn it all over. I mean, when you read about the building of the temple and the tabernacle, these guys must have got a ton of booty, right? They had tons of stuff to basically bring for the construction of the temple and all of that. They were, they were poor, helpless, miserable, and yet when they left captivity, they were given great gifts to accomplish a great task. And that's what I want you to see. Now, Jesus is also going to make a very interesting reference when he's, he's sitting here talking up to the, to the uh, religious leaders of the day. <clears throat> They're basically coming to him and said, teacher, we need you to give a sign. And Jesus says, oh, I'm going to give you a sign. And I want you to pay special attention because Jesus will make little comments, right? People are looking at, the, at this, and then he'll say something at the bottom, and it's like, whew, passed right by. But I don't want you to miss those little nuggets. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. He says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, everybody was worried about the sign of Jonah, but nobody was paying attention to the whole idea when he says, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. No one raised their hand and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Right? They just wanted to see a sign. And so that goes on. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, and especially we'll get back to this idea of unleavened bread. And this is part of what I'm going to call the fourth piece, which is the eternal plan of God. So in the Bible, and we spend lots of time talking about it, we talk about sin in the church and, and people get freaked out with sin. I love the passage in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I love how Paul turns a phrase. So he uses the word wages. Why wages? Well, what do you get when you work really hard? We all go to work, do our work, and at the end of that pay period, what do we get? Our wages, what we have due. And when Paul makes this comment, and you've lived your whole life, what does payday get you? Death. That's your pay. Here you go. You did all this stuff, and you were never good enough, and so you're going to die. Now, what happens if all mankind who is trapped in sin continues to sin, and the ruler of this world takes all of these sinful people, they die, they come down to Hades, and he says, get in there with the rest of them. But suppose somebody shows up who doesn't sin. Houston, we have a problem, right? And that is the plan of God. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, 
It records this man delivered over by what? The predetermined plan of God. You weren't going to fool God. Remember when we sang about God causes all things to work together for good? He knew what was going to happen to mankind. He knew mankind would be subject to death, and yet he already had a plan for how to overcome this. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's Jesus Christ. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why could it not hold him? Because God just made a decree? Well, there's part of that that's true, but part of it is the fact that Jesus was absolutely sinless. He could not be subject to the wages of sin. What is the wages of sin? Death. Came to payday. He couldn't cash that check. So what had to happen? He had to be raised from the dead. Now, to those people who sit back and say, well, I have a hard time with the Bible, it's incredible. You think about this. This story goes back several thousand years and talks about sin entering into the world right? By the disobedience of one man, and because if you sin, you're going to die. And several thousand years later, a guy comes along and says, guess what? Who of you accuses me of sin? And he demonstrates it. Why? Because he rises from the dead, because sin could not hold him, right? Death could not hold him. You're sitting there going, this story gets a whole lot more interesting as we, the closer we look. <clears throat> now, remember we talked about the story of Jonah. Jonah Jesus says, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So the question is, what did Jesus do for three days and three nights? Normally, we sit back and we think, well, he, he was crucified, and then we laid him in, in the tomb. But what happened? Right? Like all humans, what happens when you die? You go to Hades. So he goes to Hades, and what does he do? 1 Peter 3, chapter 18 and 19, or verse 18 and 19 tells us, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. How do you get saved? I got saved by the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm on this side of the cross. If I'm on the other side of the cross, how do you get saved? by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went into Hades, proclaimed the gospel, and suddenly set all of these captives free. Remember the whole idea of the divine pattern. <clears throat> when he does this, I'm, I'm assuming there was a great commotion. And you have to get in your head the whole understanding of what's happening. This is Satan's stronghold. This is the place where he holds ultimate power and destiny. It says, men are held captives because of our fear of death, right? We hate death. I mean, that's part of the reason we wear these masks. That's why we get so afraid of this virus. We're held captive by this fear of this thing we can't control, and we don't know when it's going to show up. And this gave Satan great power over us. And yet, in the gospel, Jesus Christ, our king, is going to go into the strong man's castle, if you will, and basically wreck havoc. And that's what he did. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, it says, when I saw him, this is John talking, he said, <clears throat> I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is to an angel. And he placed his right hand on, on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. This is Jesus Christ, not the angel. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have 
the keys of death and Hades. Now, there's two schools of thought. One says Jesus always had the keys. Another one says he went and got the keys. In the end, it all, all results in the same thing. So wherever you are theologically, right, Jesus goes into the strong man's place and he basically wrecks havoc on that. As a matter of fact, if you remember, there was one particular time Jesus was um, casting out demons and the Pharisees came along and said, well, you're Beelzebub, right? You're one of the, the leaders of the demons because you're casting out the demons. Jesus says, no, a kingdom can't be divided. Again, he throws a little nugget at the end of that. In verse Matthew 12, 29, he says, Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Right? In the scriptures is all of this idea. Jesus, he's not letting on, but he gives us little hints. And he's sitting here saying, what's going to happen is I'm ultimately going to die. I'm ultimately going to go into the strong man's castle, if you will. And I'm going to free everybody who is captive. I'm going to preach the gospel and release all those people. And I'm going to ascend, uh, bring them on high. And when I do that, I'm going to give gifts to men. Why? Because I'm king of heaven, I'm king of earth, and I'm king of Hades. There's no realm that I, don't, that I haven't conquered. I've gone to the highest heights to the lowest depths. You can't get any better than Jesus Christ in terms of all that he's accomplished on our behalf. Right? And that whole story was written about in all three Gospels. So, what are the implications of what Jesus Christ has just done? Again, the book of Revelation tells us. He says, I saw it. This is Revelation 5, 1 to 4, if you're taking notes. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is God the Father. <clears throat> and he's holding a scroll, a book written inside and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Notice all three realms. In heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. Nobody was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. <clears throat> the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Why was John weeping? That scroll, evidently, the theologian believed, holds the title deed to the earth. It has these seals on the inside, or it's written on the inside and on the out. Now, if you know anything about ancient customs, you normally would open up a scroll and you'd read whatever was written there, right? This was the title deed to planet earth, but it was also written on the outside. It's like, why would you write on the outside? Evidently, the reason was because those were the conditions for what you had to achieve in order to open this. And there was no man. Why? Because all men were sinners. Nobody could do this. And as, as John began to look, I mean, it's, some versions say he weeped convulsively. He was beside himself. He couldn't take it. Like, there is no hope for any of us. What are we going to do? And yet this small lamb appears, right, who was slain from the foundation of the world. God had a plan all along to go in to plunder the strong man's house and basically to give us gifts so that we could basically achieve the unity that he set about in Christ. Whoever is going to speak next week, I believe that's probably going to be you, Brian, is going to talk more about that and the gifts that are given to men for this purpose to bring us all into unity. Right? And that's what God ultimately wants to, to have happen over all the realms of the creation. He wants to bring all of us together as one giant family to ultimately overcome death. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's a plan that was set in motion 
since the foundation of the world. And I hope in today you get a little bit of a glimpse how important that burial was because without the burial, right, we got to overcome death through the, or overcome our sin by the crucifixion. We were given gifts because of that. That's what he said. He went on high and he gave gifts to men. That's where you get the gifting that comes about in the church in order to achieve unity. It's because Christ went and plundered the strong man's castle and he gave us gifts. Tremendous idea. And then ultimately he rises from the dead to show I've even overcome death. And that's what we participate as Christians, as believers in the kingdom of God. So hopefully after this now, you won't ever take the burial of Jesus Christ for granted. Matter of fact, you'll think about that when you come across these passages. It goes, yeah, I remember hearing something about that and why it's so important. Because ultimately, God wants to grant unity to the church. Remember in Ephesians, Brian talked about the fact that he wants us to be in Christ over and over and over again, that whole idea. Why does he want you to be in Christ? Well, think about where Christ has been from heaven to Hades right? From top to bottom. He is Lord of all, and He demonstrates it in all the realms of creation, right? We are referred to as His family, right? His family, His people. Not only are we His family, we talked about that a little bit last week, we're also heirs. He's going to give us great things. Is it personal wealth? I have no idea. I know the first thing that He gave us was gifts so that we could achieve the unity that is in Christ, right? We are the saints of the living God. I mean, when we fully understand all that God has done, it becomes a great thing. And we begin to get a grasp of that when you just look around at all your brothers and sisters here. As we all get ready to stand and sing, I want you to think about this verse in Revelation chapter 7, because I want you to look forward to your future. It says, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces and before the throne, and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So please stand with an eye towards our eternal unity in Christ with all the saints.